Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Okay, I have a candid question for you. First off, how many ineffective, boring talks and presentations have you listened to? And the second question is, and how many of those have you given? Well, today, we're going to talk about changing that status quo for you and for your listeners. And this is not, I want you to understand, this is not just something that a very few natural speakers can do. This is something anybody can do. And I have a brilliant guest here to help us with this, Bill McGowan is the founder and CEO of Clarity Media Group, and he is a two-time Emmy Award-winning journalist. He's produced and reported for ABC News 2020, CBS News 48 Hours, Dow Jones Television, MSNBC, and Bill now uses his experience to coach people on how to exude confidence and have command in front of an audience. He's trained people like Eli Manning and Sheryl Sandberg and Jack Welsh, along with the CEOs of Facebook, Airbnb, Snapchat, Coach, Spotify, Calvin Klein, Lyft, 70s, Sesame Workshop, Whole Foods, and we could go on. So Bill's an expert, obviously, in public speaking, um, and he's prepared many people for TED Talks and for major speeches, helping them become go from proficient to polished to find their authentic narrative and then enable them to deliver that narrative with passion and persuasion. He's the author of a new book called Pitch Perfect, How to Say It Right the First Time Every Time. Bill, with pleasure, welcome to the show. Wanda, thanks so much for having me. That's and congratulations I'm thrilled. on your book, by the way. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm very excited about it. Um, let's talk for a minute. So you trained thousands of people to be confident mm-hmm. public speakers. Short story, what's the secret sauce? The secret sauce is not being the bird on the wire. And what I mean by that is all of us have basically learned how to give presentations by watching other people do it through osmosis. And traditionally, that's been a very bad teaching method because the people we're watching are doing a lot of things wrong and doing too few things that are really capturing the imagination and the engagement of the audience. Um, And I think that there are certain standard cliche techniques and devices that people use in presentations that make them sound like everybody else. And the minute your audience hears you get up there sounding like a zillion other presentations they've heard, they immediately start to sink into their seat. So I would say it's the sameness syndrome. Ah, I love that one. So when you say cliche devices, give me an example. One of them is what I call the agenda set start. And that is coming out on stage or in front of a conference room of people and saying, good morning, everyone. I'm Bill McGowan. I'm the founder of Clarity Media Group. I want to talk a little bit today about public speaking, and we're going to examine this, that, and the other thing. But before we do that, let me take a couple steps back and just unpack for you and put into context you know, the, all this talking about what you're going to talk about. 
and establishing this table of contents of how your presentation is going to unfold right at the very top. And um, that traditionally is a terrible way to begin. You're really never going to hook your audience and engage them from word one, which is absolutely what you have to do. Okay. Now, Bill, I have to say, I read this in your book, and I hear you say it right now, and there's a sort of a big ouch in me. He said, I gave a big talk a couple of weeks ago. I didn't used to put in my agenda, but somebody told me you needed to because that kind of helps the audience go with the flow and or get the flow and understand what's going to happen. And you're telling me it's a really bad idea. I think there's an opportunity in one sentence to explain why you're up there speaking to people. But my feeling is it needs to come after the conclusion of some opening story that you tell. Uh, and okay. the punchline or the moral to the story has to be thematically connected to what you're up there to tell people. Okay. So I would say backload that line that says, today I'm going to instill in you the skills that help you accomplish that. Let's get right to it. That, okay. that, that's as long as that expectation-setting part of your presentation should be. No more okay. than that. Okay. We have – so I get this about the cliches, and I want to stay with this agenda set start thing because I think it's so important. So your notion is we start with an opening story. We tell a story about something relevant to the talk I'm going to give. And then that story, the conclusion of that story, the moral of that story has to be the flow right straight to the agenda that I'm going to do. But I have one sentence to give the agenda. Did I get that straight? That's very, very close. Yes. Okay. And the story doesn't have to be obviously related thematically to what you're up there talking about. I think there's a value in starting with a story that seems thematically disconnected to what the audience thinks they're going to get. And a lot of people initially question me on this and say, don't you think the audience is going to be perplexed? I say, yeah, that's actually good. You know, them sitting up and now thinking, okay, how's he going to get from there to there is a form of engagement. Mm-hmm. It's much mm-hmm. better than doing what a million other people do. Okay. The unexpected okay. and rare start is in and of itself an attention getter. Okay. So let me give you an example, Wanda. Yeah. Recently I worked with an executive who works for a company and in their marketing department they do two different functions that typically no other marketing department in their industry does. Everybody else outsources at least one of those functions. This company does both of them, and that makes them an absolute rarity, and it gives them a competitive advantage. So rather than start off with that, my suggestion was, let's start with video of this pitcher for the Oakland A's, who is the only pitcher in baseball who actually can throw both left-handed and right-handed. And he can switch in the middle of a game. They just have to bring him out a different glove. And you can 
talk about the fact that this is a rarity. Nobody else in baseball does it. And what it does is it gives him a competitive advantage that no other pitcher in baseball has, and that is the flexibility to do two things incredibly well. So obviously, the moral to that story, the punchline of that story, is completely aligned with the fact that in the game of marketing, they do two things incredibly well, and nobody else does more than one. So essentially, you're tying that story into now an explanation that you have a competitive advantage in, in marketing because you are the rarity. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. I get that. And I get the attention-grabbing component of it, and I get the engagement with the audience where they're starting to wonder, what is, wait, what's he going to say? How does this fit? Right. But I also know that when we tell a story, we tell a human story, people listen in ways they don't listen to anything else. And I'll also tell you from my original research, they remember it, too, in ways they don't remember anything else. Why is it so hard for us to get accustomed to telling stories in corporate life? I think there's this misconception that formality is tantamount to professionalism. And that's another habit that I wind up having to break with a lot of clients. Only people who are knowledgeable about their content are comfortable enough to be casual. (laughs) And I find that when people feel a little insecure that they have command of the material, that somehow appearing professional means they have to act very formal and use stilted sentence structure and words that are too big and jargon all over the place. The best presentations I've ever seen sound like somebody telling it to me across a dinner table, not standing in a room in front of 500 people. (laughs) And in some respects, I think, even when I hear people tell stories, I find that the stories just don't have a casual, thoughtful, they have a very tight, rigid, formal, scripted feel to them. (laughs) Uh, So I think a lot of people feel a little insecure about telling a story, And they feel as though somehow they're not going to seem as buttoned up professionally. Uh, And and what they do in exchange is speak in a very abstract, theoretical way. The point you make, Wanda, is absolutely true. Research has shown that when you take factual information and you embed it within a story, it's 22 times more memorable to your audience than just firehosing theoretical and abstract information to people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, we can do chapter and verse on why that's true. I find that there is this fear of breaking out of the norm. So you talk about cliche yeah. devices at the very beginning. You know, and I have clients, I have a bunch of clients where I say to them, I'm going to come in and I'm going to do something, and, you know, they want the PowerPoint presentation. And my response is, no PowerPoints. Mm-hmm. And they're like in panic. This isn't going to go well. You don't understand our people, to which I say, I think I do understand your people. That's the point. But there's this panic of not following the norm. Mm-hmm. Well, people 
feel uncomfortable being nonconformists. <laughs> they feel as though they're opening themselves up to criticism and judgment. Uh, it's considered risky. Mm-hmm. And yet, you and I have both been in the position, I'm sure, where someone walked into the room fully expecting to be immersed in some big, clunky deck, and it winds up being coaching that is much more conversationally driven, where we're doing a lot of the listening, and at the end of the session, the trainee says, by the way, thank you for not diving into some PowerPoint presentation. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And I've heard that many, many times. Yeah, yeah, I get the same. I hate doing them. It changes the dynamics. But this isn't about me. Let's go back to what you said at the very beginning. You said the secret sauce for being a great public speaker is to not be the bird on the wire, meaning not to do what everybody else is doing, especially when those have been bad methods that we watch everybody doing. And you said they're cliche devices. And we talked about one, which is this agenda set start. So we said not that, to do something completely different. What's another cliche you see people doing? There's this scourge that has overtaken corporate America where everybody overuses this expression from a, from a so-and-so perspective or from a so-and-so standpoint. I have, this has been, this has become ubiquitous now to the point where it has even bled over into something as removed as sports broadcasting. I, I've heard sports announcers now say, well, from a velocity perspective, uh, you know, this pitcher is quite, uh, quite at the top of his game. It's so unnecessary uh, when the simpler way to say it is he throws hard, he throws fast. Um, and I have heard people say, well, from a revenue perspective, it looks like this, but from, from a people standpoint or from a, from a, from a culture perspective, I've heard people use perspective and standpoint about five times within the same paragraph. And mm-hmm. it's just a very stilted, overused crutch that people are now leaning on. So what do we do instead? You... Act as though, like if you were sitting down to dinner with a friend, would you say, uh, Wanda, you know, I want to get to talking about your family in a little bit, but let me take a few steps back now and just give you a little context about what's going on with me. You would never say that. That would be weird if you met somebody for dinner and they did that. Well, let me talk about life from a family perspective. Um, you know, from, from, my, uh, from a daughter's standpoint, uh, my girls are doing quite well. Uh, if you can't imagine saying this to a friend over dinner, don't say it. <laughs> that is great advice. <laughs> <laughs> it just winds up feeling very weird, very contrived. And what you're really doing is you're verbally setting this barrier between you and the audience. Yeah. Okay. I love that. So if you wouldn't say it to a friend every dinner, don't say it now. And you're right. It does create a barrier. And it's a couch. It's like, let me, you know, just in case somebody might disagree with me, let me sort of provide some secondary, you know, whatever. Yeah. Rather than just say, look, folks, I believe. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Uh, and be assertive. And what I'm usually trying to instill in the people that I work with is showcasing their conviction in what they think, what they believe, what their strategy is. Yeah. yeah. I, I find that people mistake what the definition of success is in mm-hmm. communication. Okay. The definition of success should never be perfection or getting through it technically clean without making any hiccups or stumbles. That is completely the wrong North Star to follow. Okay. If you do that, you will wind up flattening out and being very monotone and, and dispassionate about it. I, I couldn't care less if you had a f- couple of hiccups and stumbles along the way. But if you came out and your definition of success was making everybody in the audience believe that you think this information is important, and this is a valuable use of your time listening to me, if you exude that vibe, that'd be a much better goal to set for yourself. Yeah, I certainly, yeah, that's, I can get that. I know that there have been times when I've been speaking to an audience and I have felt that what I had to say was not really critical to this group at this moment in time and they're all disasters. So that sense right. of believing that what I have to say is really important and it's worth your time is really, really useful. So, Bill, while we're on this one, let's talk about confidence. So I hear this from people coming and going, that they're not confident in speaking in public, that they struggle and they don't know how yada yada. You've heard it as well. What do you, how do you help people gain that level of confidence? The more you know your content, the more confident you're going to be. Yeah. And it is just a simple fact that people do not prepare as much as they need to prepare. Mm. There are people who come in the door of our company and they want us, they will say, turn me into Steve Jobs. I want to become like Steve Jobs presenting. And what I often tell them is, hey, listen, I'm, I'm happy to get you as close to that as I can, but you have to be prepared to put in the time because... Steve Jobs rehearsed every single keynote presentation that he would do at some important product launch. He rehearsed it 70 times. Uh, Wow. That was a man who got on stage and left absolutely nothing to chance. He knew this thing backwards and forwards. And when you achieve that level of preparation, your confidence level is going to go up considerably. But there are a couple of other tricks Mm -hmm. in the moment that I find are really vital. One of them is find four people in your audience or sitting around the conference table who are what I call good listeners. They're people who are nodding and smiling and looking engaged and validating that what you're saying is, is resonating and they're enjoying listening to you. In every audience, there are at least four of those people. Try to find one in each quadrant of the room and 
this is a tactic that is especially good if big crowds unnerve you. Mm-hmm. Find one of those good listeners in each corner of the room and just speak now to those four people. Move mm-hmm. your, your attention <clears throat> around the room periodically and look at those people. Their nodding and smiling will boost your confidence that what you're saying is working. Mm-hmm. What you don't want to do is find the person who has the classic resting bitch face or is looking yeah. at their phone or scrolling on their device with their head down, seemingly tuned out, that is a big confidence killer. Mm-hmm. Try to avoid looking at those people. Focus on the ones that are actively engaged. Okay. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. All right. Any other tricks? If you go out there with a bright demeanor, in some respects, this is a fake-it-till-you-make-it proposition. You have to look confident before you actually achieve real confidence. And I've never seen anybody on stage who came across nervous who was smiling, who looked like they'd been looking forward to this opportunity to talk to these people all week. A smile and a bright demeanor is the best cloaking device on nerves you can possibly employ. <laughs> I love People that. People who are nervous look like somebody held a gun to their head and forced them out on stage against their will. Yeah, and they can't wait to get out of here either, by the way. <laughs> How fast can yeah, I say it and they, rush they, away? And ultimately what they do is they wind up speaking really fast so they can get it over with quicker. Mm-hmm. And then speaking fast is just a slippery slope because ultimately when you speak quickly, it is inherently apologetic to your audience. What you're saying when you blow through your presentation is that I'm not feeling confident up here. I want to get off as soon as I can. And I'm sure you're probably really bored with what I'm saying. So I'll bore you for less time by going through this in half the time. Mm-hmm. The people who are supremely confident take their time. They have full beat or two pauses, sometimes in the middle of sentences. They have absolutely no qualms about having the floor and looking like they own it. Yeah. I love that. What two great tips, advice, you know, to find four people who are with you nodding, good listeners even if the ones on the phone are taking notes, they're not good listeners. It's not a confidence booster. And then the second thing about going out bright and smiling and being comfortable, well, not being comfortable, looking like you're comfortable, excited to be there, I should say. Yes, taking your time, looking like you are not just racing through this to get through it. And also, The mindset that you go out with is really important. I find the majority of people erroneously assume that everybody in the audience is just sitting back and waiting for them to have a meltdown moment. Somehow that nasty little evil voice on our shoulder convinces us that that's what's happening. And it's not true. Everyone in the audience is rooting for you. They want you to do well. They are not... They are, they are supporters, not adversaries. And you have to go out there realizing that 
some people in the audience are just going to give you a blank stare back. It's not that they're not engaged. It's mm-hmm. that they don't realize the expressiveness that they're conveying. I've had people look utterly zoned out in a presentation I've given to the point where I kind of gave up on them. and I thought, well, there's no pulling them back into the fold. Only to have those people come up to me at the end of the speech and say, you know, I was really fascinated with a point you made earlier. And I'm thinking, wow, I, I assumed you were already daydreaming about what you were going to have for dinner. I had no idea that you were still part of the part of the function. So it's important to read the room, but it's really important not to overread the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had the same experience. I've had learned to train my brain on this one that some people would be working a class and there will be people who just have no engagement on their face at all. In fact, if you looked at their face, you would think they are absolutely bored to tears, completely disagree with everything you say and are just waiting for the moment to pounce on you. And mm-hmm. two days right. later, they'll write you an email saying that was the most amazing thing that they had participated in or whatever. It just took them a while to process it. So you have to – those blank stares don't always mean what we think they mean. So no, I'm with we, you on that one. You can't attribute really negative motives to them because people are unaware of the vibe they give off. Yeah. So to that end, the people that we work with, I also work on what their listening expression is to other people who may be speaking, whether they're being interviewed by a journalist or whether they're leading a meeting and people who report to them have the floor and have to deliver information. I try to get them to have a a listening expression that conveys um, curiosity, eagerness to hear what the other person has to say. It's very important, and I've had executives say, you know, what you taught me was really valuable in that CNBC interview I did where, you know, I was visible to the viewer for a long time during the anchor's question, and I looked positive. I looked from my facial expression like I had a good story to tell, that I was sitting, you know, in a great position competitively in my industry. It it conveyed all those things we wanted to convey, but now I have found that it has influenced the internal communication within our company, that people report to me in a much more transparent and um, confident way because I'm not looking at them with a scowl on my face, which they're interpreting as some kind of negative judgment. Right. Especially if you're in a position of power. Yeah, it's, it's very important that you you offer even that type of encouragement to the people who report to you. Yeah. We often don't think about that, about the expression that's on our face, particularly if you're Mm -hmm. a leader of a group, and how people interpret, and I should say over-interpret, trying to read every signal that you give away and whether this is good or not so good, um, and being right. thoughtful about that, getting feedback about that, seeing it for yourself, understanding the impact is huge, not just for a TV interview. Okay, Bill, we're at a wonderful stopping point to take a break. So with me today okay. is Bill McGowan. The book is Pitch Perfect, How to Say It Right the First Time Every Time. I should say that Bill is um, an Emmy Award-winning journalist and now a coach 
helping all sorts of people improve their public speaking, going from proficient to polished, and to give their authentic narrative in a way that conveys passion and persuasion. I think you've heard of that in a lot of places. Um, I think the thing that just sticks with me in this first half, Bill, is this notion of agenda, set, start. Don't. Don't copy the bad habits that you're seeing everybody else do. Let's break the mold and do something that's really going to be engaging. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about crafting the words and answering questions, but I also want to talk about other kind of couple things like the pasta principle and the draper principle. So come back. We'll be back soon. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network if you want more information on the articles books coaching and seminars we offer go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com you're sure to find some helpful links videos and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization leadership forum inc helping organizations get it and keep it How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Bill McGowan, and we have been talking about how to do a public presentation, whether that's a small group or a large group, in a way that's engaging, exciting, persuasive, and people will walk away from it saying, that was worth my time. We talked about confidence as well. Um, the book is Pitch Perfect, How to Say It Right the First Time. I think I got the subtitle of that one correct. So, Bill, you have seven principles in this book that I really, really like. We're not going to go through all seven. People will need to buy the book to get that one. But you have this one called the pasta sauce principle, which I like. Explain it to us. Which I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Which principle? Pasta sauce principle. What a great title. I love this principle because I'm an avid cook, and it's uh, often the case that on a Sunday I will put a pasta sauce up on the stove to cook for two, three hours. 
And what anyone who cooks knows is that the longer you take to, the more time you invest to reduce the volume of that sauce, the more flavorful it's going to be, the more impact it's going to have. And I think the same is true for public speaking, that if you invest the time to whittle this down to its core message and get rid of all the repetition and extraneous information, what you have is something that's got a lot more impact than just filling up, gratuitously filling up your time and space. But the problem, Wanda, is getting to simple is really hard, and it's really hard for a lot of people. And I always marvel at how some of the great geniuses of all time, whether it's Leonardo da Vinci or Albert Einstein or Mark Twain or, or um, Steve Jobs, all of them professed how important simplicity was. They were all devotees of simplicity. You know, Mark Twain saying, don't use a 25-cent word when a 5-cent word totally suffices. And so getting your message down to something simple and declarative is time-consuming, but it's worth the effort. Okay. So how? how? What's the process like? I think it can start even with emails. So I'm a, I'm a little bit of a nut, I'll admit it, that every email that I write, I go back and reread with the intent of getting rid of 25% of it. Because okay. I realize even with my discipline as a writer in television where you have to learn how to tell full stories in a minute and a half, I'm looking to get rid of every word that's not, that is non-essential. Mm-hmm. And, you know, William Faulkner said, you know, you have to learn how to kill your darlings. And yeah. <laughs> what he meant by that was, if you're a writer, of course you think everything has to be in there. Oh, I can't live without that. And, well, no, actually you can. You're the only one who knows it's in there. If you go out there and you miss an entire page of a presentation, I guarantee you only 5 to 10% of the audience will even know. So only you are the one who knows that something is potentially missing from, from a presentation. Okay. Wow. So this is a discipline we need to practice every day in everything. Yes. And it, um, it, has, to, it has to be pervasive. It has to be a discipline that you so embrace that before you say a sentence, you're thinking, what is the most concise way I can say this? Right. How do I make sure I don't drone on? I do. As people in, have heard me say, I do a lot of work with women, and one of the issues for women is this notion of executive presence. I don't think it's unique yeah. to women. I think everybody needs to get a little better with their executive presence. But in the context of that, I've sort of developed this little model around what I think it takes to make executive presence. And one of my number one criteria is concise. And if it takes you 30 seconds before you ever get to the point I don't care anymore in the average meeting. And in New York, that might be 10 seconds, but 
this sense of beginning to the point, concise, what is it I really mean? What is it you need to hear and drop the rest? Mm-hmm. I, for the past 18 years, have probably coached more, many more women than men. And I okay. think women are just better at accepting resources that can help them be their best and mm-hmm. they don't let their ego get in the way. Mm-hmm. And one of the big gender differences I have found is that women tend to m- present the supporting argument before they tell you what they think. It's almost like they're upfront justifying what they're about to tell you. Whereas men tell you what they think and then they support it. And I think that's a better format than making people wait a long time. And there's something inherently defensive about taking that approach. Mm-hmm. Laying out all the arguments for why this is a valid idea and then tell people the idea. Okay. Logically, it makes sense to me that I need to tell you what I what I believe and tell it to you with passion and commitment and all the things that we've been talking about, confidence. And, and then, then say, here's why I yeah. think that. Yeah. And then go into your support. Right. Or let people ask questions at that point. So you can convince them either one of those. But I hear a lot sure. of people say that doesn't feel like me. I don't want to do it that way. That feels more masculine-like. Do you have a response to that one? I don't think it's masculine or feminine. I think it's assertive. I think it's ah. showing a level of certainty that is completely independent of gender. Okay. Fabulous. All right. So pasta sauce principle, which is the more time you spend uh, whittling down the message into something that is simple and straightforward with no extraneous words. And I love your challenge to go back over every email and cut 25% of it. We could say that about talks and about everything else. Fabulous. Mm -hmm. I want to go to the next one I love, which is called the Draper principle. Tell us about that one. The Draper Principle probably be familiar to just about any fan of Mad Men, the TV show. Uh, and Don Draper, who was the creative director of this ad agency, who was the protagonist in the show, had an expression in which he said, if you don't like what's being said, change the conversation. And there is a lot of truth to that and in public presenting I think it probably comes into play most when you're uh, accepting a Q&A from your mm-hmm. audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying don't answer people's questions, but if you feel as though the topic of the question lacks a relevance to the broader audience or is somewhat disconnected to what you're really there to talk about, it is not your responsibility to indulge this question for 30, 45 seconds. Deal with it concisely and then find a way to segue to something that you feel is much more appropriate and of greater interest to your audience. Okay. Can you give an example about that? The principle 
when we pro- coach people for yeah. doing media interviews in the media training industry, it's like yeah. commonly accepted practice called bridging, mm-hmm. where you answer the question very concisely, but you make sure you get to the things you want to talk about. So you have to steer the conversation in that direction yourself. You can't rely on the person asking the questions to tee you up to go there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So can you give an example of what this looks like? Well, let's say, let's say you wanted to talk to me about the book, which mm-hmm. is normally a conversation that I wouldn't ever avoid having. No, I don't think any author would. But I really want to talk about this digital online training academy that Clarity Media Group launched earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really want to talk about. So you've asked me a question about the book. And my answer is, well, Wanda, it was, it was a really great exercise. And I think what it allowed me to do was condense pretty much all the knowledge that I've accumulated over 18 years of coaching people and put it in one place. And that's also the basic principle behind this new online academy we've launched earlier this year. And now what you can do, if you can't see us one-on-one for individual in-person coaching, you can essentially get a training session from us through dozens and dozens of one-minute instructional videos. So I got off the book, and I moved the conversation to our digital academy on my own. I'm not sitting back and waiting for you to ask me that question, because it may never come. Mm -hmm. And this is is a technique that I think is really appropriate in job interviews. Great. Great. Uh, you have a great story to tell. They're asking you about your industriousness, your stick to And maybe you've got something that works for you, a story that illustrates how hard you work. But after you tell that story, perhaps you say, but I feel one of the biggest values that I bring to an organization is how I can creatively problem solve. It's not about, and now you're talking about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you answer the question, but you answer it sort of quickly, and then I'm going to tie it to the thing that I really wanted to say, the core message I wanted to give or the quality I wanted to highlight. Just in any of the classic connector ways, as in the thing I really think I bring more, even more so than determination is creative problem solving. Okay. Well, you have to, obviously, someone on the fly, you have to create this segue line. But yeah. the classic segue lines could be, and that's just one area that we feel uh, we provide value to our clients. Another one is, and now you're bridging. Uh-huh. Or, you know, the book isn't the only place where you could find that information. We also have, so those are two examples. Right. Right. Fabulous. I love it. Okay. I have, I have to shift gears on us one more time because I want to talk about <laughs> crafting the words. 
that you believe the words you use really matter. Why and how do we do that? I'm certainly not the first person or the only person to pound this idea into the ground, but jargon is the enemy of engagement. Mm, okay. And I've had people say, well, I worry if I don't throw around this industry jargon, people are going to assume I don't know what I'm talking about. And the news that I have to break to them is, no, actually, when you lean on all of those nonsense, empty calorie words, I assume you don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's the person who can state it simply and concisely who clearly gets it. Right. And I find that jargon winds up essentially being almost like the GMOs of language. You know, they're mm-hmm. synthetically manufactured words. They're not in the dictionary. If you wrote them on your computer and there was a red line underneath that word, then you should never be saying that word. Mm-hmm. It means it's not a word. And, you know, Webster's has a ton of perfectly fine, road-tested, effective words there's absolutely no reason why we should be making any more up. <laughs> that is such I, a I've heard some real buttes lately. Um, disintermediation, somebody said in an interview the other day, I was like, what the heck does that mean? Um, I've heard somebody say, well, we're going to conversate around that uh, next week. You, what, are you going to talk about that? Yeah. Well, why don't you just say that? Why do you have to say conversate? That isn't even a word. And the other scourge is turning nouns or adjectives into verbs where somebody says, well, we diligenced that deal last week. Diligent? Diligence? I thought that was an adjective. When did it become a, na- when did it become a verb? Uh, so there's this bastardization of the English language that is taking place and it's just wrong. And I don't think audiences respond well to it. (laughs) The last thing you want your audience is to see if they're doing just what you did. Um, Conversate, what is that? Because then they've missed the point. So once they're thinking about that, they're not thinking about what you said. I love your line that you said, Webster has a lot of perfectly fine words that have been road tested. Just use them. I just think that's a great one. But that's, so, you know, that, that's a good jargon litmus test. If there's a red line underneath that word on your computer, then do not, ha- do not catch it coming out of your mouth. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, I should stay out of her emails, too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. All right. So now we have just a couple minutes before we're done. I feel like I could talk for the next three hours and we would barely scratch the surface of all you had to say. If you had any other last couple of pieces of advice, what would you say is going to make the most difference? And you've got a few minutes. It's not like we have to rush to close this one. I think warming up is enormously helpful. I think a lot of people don't do that and, A lot of times it takes them two or three minutes to find their footing. Just find a quiet room or some quiet space away from everybody and um, 
to say out loud the first two or three minutes of your presentation. I think that's when you're going to be the most nervous. And there's a big difference between saying it out loud and hearing it come out of your own mouth and silently imagining in your head what you're going to say. So rehearsing out loud, I think, can be really beneficial. The other thing is, before you get on stage or before you start presenting, go around the room, shake as many hands as you can, introduce yourself to as many people as you can. A lot of times I'll say, so what, do you, what were you hoping to come away with from here today? What would be a big win for you to hear? You know, and I sometimes will do that before I give a talk, especially if it's a really big crowd. And um, it's just interesting to take the pulse of the room and now these people that I've had conversations with are no longer strangers. So when I look out into the audience, I see somebody I know. They're looking back at me now as a more invested listener where they, I'm no longer a stranger to them. So it just creates this dynamic and chemistry that's, that really helps. Yeah, yeah. Plus, it gives you a you know piece of information to reference in that very very beginning, which makes it feel like it's more personal. At least that's one trip I, trick I use. That's a very very good point. Okay, all right. So warming up, just hearing yourself say the words out loud for the first minute or two or three of your talk, and not saying it in your head, literally saying it out loud, so you get rid of some of that nervousness. You know what it sounds like, and you get your voice warmed up too, presumably. Absolutely. I, years ago, I was coaching a CEO in Las Vegas, and he was addressing the franchisees of this very large company. So there were 2,000 people in the audience, and he was on stage at 7.45 in the morning. The earlier in the morning, the more you have to warm up your voice, and he didn't. And literally every 15 seconds, he was clearing his throat. And apologizing mm-hmm. for it. Yeah. It was just awful. Yeah. Yeah. He had this morning frog, and he couldn't get rid of it. Right. And when you're talking, is not the time to try to be getting rid of a cough or clearing your throat or, you know, because now you've got it exaggerated. It's not going to go very well at all. Right. Yeah, and it, it gets back on your heels. You know, you want to be, you want to be literally on your toes, on the balls of your feet. If you're standing in front of a room, don't start marching around in place. Don't sway, don't rock, don't shuffle. If you're going to move, move with a sense of purpose from one side of the stage to the other, as long as you don't look like the tiger in the cage at the zoo where you're just pacing back and forth. Yeah. But do not do what I call the stationary march, and that is not be able to keep your feet still. That is a big piece of advice when it comes to executive presence. Yeah, yeah. Nail a commanding, stable presence in front of the room, and then when you move, move with a sense of purpose. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me, Uh, place in the room. Um, Commanding space in the room, and then move with purpose, with intentionality, not the pacing back and forth. Right, And, and move during thematic transitions. Mm-hmm. Don't walk with your head down when you're making a big point. Come to a full stop before you make the big point. Okay. That makes sense. 
I hadn't thought about that one, but it does make sense. I have a point, and when the I make that point, I'm going to stop. in your tracks yeah. literally brings more attention to people. Love it, Bill. Those are fabulous pieces of advice here on how to handle this one. Um, there's so much in this that it's sort of hard to imagine how to go back and really summarize all that you've said. I think the first thing is, if you want to be a great public speaker, then stop copying all the bad examples that we see coming and going every day. And just because everybody in your company is doing it doesn't mean that that's the thing you need to be doing. I think that's like rule number one. And then the second thing I think that's rule number one is this figure out what you're going to do in the opening moments that is actually really going to grab the audience's attention and have them engaged. And in some ways, you've said many of those along the way. You've talked about, you know, not using using a story. You've talked about walking in and shaking hands. You've talked about um, asking people what they thought they came to get. You've talked about warming up all of your voice. All of that is about those first moments where people say, oh, I want to be here. And you talked about walking in with a smile and a bright disposition as if I have something to say that you really want to hear and I'm happy to be here. So that you get that sense that that beginning is really important. And then I just love this pasta sauce principle. Cut it down, cut it down, cut it down, cut it down. It's a discipline we should do absolutely every single day. So, um, and then all the tips on confidence. What a great 16, outline. 16,000 words a day. Uh-huh. And I've often told people, imagine if you were put on a verbal diet, and I told you, you only had 12,000 you could use today. Imagine how selective you'd be. Yeah. Imagine how quickly you'd get to the point for fear that come 4 o'clock, you hit, you hit 12,000 and you ran out of words. That would be an interesting test if we if we could actually measure that and monitor it. I think we'd be a whole lot better off. Who's going to invent the verbal version of the pedometer? <laughs> Oops, you're out. You can't talk anymore. I love that. That's right. <laughs> okay, and with that, Bill, we are out of time. So my guest today is Bill McGowan. The book which I highly recommend, is called Pitch Perfect, How to Say It Right the First Time Every Time. And if you'd like to know more about Bill or his digital media group, it's called Clarity Media Group, and they do tons of training to help a variety of clients get the right message, say it in the right way, and have this persuasive and authentic impact. Bill, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Wanda. Really enjoyed the conversation. And likewise, and join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.